The following message is brought to you by Champions Church. For more information, please visit champschurch.com. Blessings. I'm excited to get into the Word with you this morning. I know God has incredible things for us. He's speaking to us individually and collectively. He's leading us, He's guiding us, and He has incredible plans for us. No matter where you're at, no matter what you're going through, I know that God's Word has the power to enrich your life, to see the victory and the breakthrough that we have promised to us in Jesus by the power of the Holy Ghost. As we get into the Word, I want to encourage you with a few things. First of all, I want to encourage you to follow along. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Scriptures. Uh, I encourage note-taking. If you have the materials available to you to take some notes, that's always very helpful. It helps you to recall things that were uh, ministered and spoken. It also uh, gives the opportunity for you to revisit those things in your own time and allow God to minister to you uh, personally and individually. If you're taking notes, there's a few things that I want to share with you this morning. A few things that we can look forward to as we get into the Word together. I know that these items are things that stood out to me personally, and hopefully they will to you as well. Now, the first one's a little intriguing, so I hope you find it intriguing as well. We're going to find out how to get young again. Now, for some of you, that's more exciting than it is for others, but I can tell you as I get older, there's some things that I miss. Like, I miss getting up off the couch without hearing things crack and pop, you know, I miss being able to eat pizza uh, before 8 o'clock or after 8 o'clock at night and, and not have challenges or issues. You know, there's some things that I miss. The Bible has some incredible promises about our, our youth and our age, our energy, our strength. And I want to find out how to obtain those promises and walk in them. Another thing we're going to find is what Jesus did to you. Now, you might think of, of a number of things that Jesus has done on your behalf or things that he's done for you, but there's something specifically that the Scripture speaks of that Jesus did to each believer, and we need to be mindful of that so that we can value it, so that we can appreciate it, and so that we can allow our lives to be affected by that. And there's a third thing that we're going to find involving our identity. Our identity collectively as the church, as the body of Christ, our identity as individuals, we're going to find out who we are. And when we find out who we are, it's going to affect our thinking, our decision-making, how we live our lives, and the choices and the decisions that we make uh, will be adjusted accordingly. I want to get right into the Word of this, this, uh, in this message here. I want to get right into the Word, and I want to bring to you a passage of Scripture. We're going to open with this passage, and as we come to the close, we're going to revisit it as well. If you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to go to the uh, Psalm, Psalm 37, verse 4. Psalm 37, 4. Now it reads like this. It reads, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. I mean, the, the idea that we have desires is incredible. The idea that God is interested in our desires and is looking to grant those things is, is phenomenal. This, this verse applies to every man, woman, or child. We, we all have desires, things that we want. And sometimes we deal with situations or circumstances where those desires are challenged. I want to give you a passage of Scripture here concerning desire and, and its importance, its value, seeing the things that we long for, the things that we want coming to pass, the importance of those things happening, and, and the destructive nature of seeing those things uh, set aside or forsaken. I mentioned to you before we're going to find out how to get young again. I mean, I want to offer this as a passage of Scripture to you. Uh, you're welcome to interpret it uh, as, as the Spirit sees fit to reveal it to you. But I'll give you a passage of Scripture here out of the Psalms, Psalm 103. I want to read verses 1 through 5. Now, you can see as we begin to read this that it's a call and a cry to worship. It's an instruction and a command to celebrate. And the one writing it is issuing this command or this instruction to themselves. Now, when I read this, I, I like to think about what's going on, what's going through the mind of the individual who's writing this. Here's what he writes, and let's revisit that thought in just a moment. He writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget his benefits. He pardons our iniquities. He heals our diseases. He redeems our life from the pit. He crowns us with his loving kindness and compassion. He satisfies our desires 
with good things so that our youth is renewed like the eagle. Now, since we're videoing this, maybe Pastor Jared can dub in some eagle cries there, you know, something like that. I think that would be pretty funny. But this is the promise that we have in the Word, that our youth is renewed, our strength is renewed and restored. And this restoration of strength and energy, this restoration of vigor and, and, and power comes when our, our satisfaction is found through the desires of our life being fulfilled. God is satisfying our desires so that our youth is renewed. I mean, when God is satisfying your desires, there's something incredible that happens. Uh, joy is, is present. Energy is present. Strength is present. You don't see people who are having their, their desires satisfied by God walking around depressed and upset and frustrated. Now, here's the challenge that I find. I find sometimes I'm walking around depressed and upset and frustrated. So it puts me in the position of having to, to evaluate my life, evaluate my heart, evaluate my desires, evaluate who God is and the promises that are in his word. We need to go through these things. Oftentimes our desires are challenged. In fact, personally, for me, recently, a, a desire that I had with, with all of my heart seemed to have, have been, it seemed to have been forsaken, forgotten, allowed to slip away, unfulfilled. And it produced in me a sense of frustration, a sense of disappointment, you know, feelings that were real, that, that as believers, as Christians, we shouldn't just pretend they're not there or, or try to, to suppress them and push them deep inside, but rather we should look at this and examine it and ask ourselves, how does this cooperate with God's Word? How is what I'm feeling right now? Cooperate with the Word of God. What do I need to do with what I'm dealing with? So that these feelings and these frustrations and this disappointment, so to speak, doesn't continue to rule and reign in my thinking and in my actions and in my attitudes. So that it doesn't enter in through this, this hope deferred and produce a destructive effect in my life. Affecting my words, affecting my thinking, affecting my actions, affecting how I interact with the people that I'm meant to love and to serve and to cherish. I want to give you a passage of scripture here, speaking about desires and appointments. Out of the Proverbs, Proverbs 13, 12. It says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. When you consider the things that we hope for, the things that we're praying for and the things that we're seeking God for, and those things being put off or those things not coming to pass, it positions us to suffer, to suffer in our feelings, to suffer in our emotions, to have our, our thinking be affected and then in turn our actions be affected. And these effects can be very negative. They, they can be in ways that are not spirit-led, but rather they're, they're led by carnality and, and darkness. But desire fulfilled promises to be a tree of life. In fact, Proverbs 13, 19 says that desire realized is sweet to the soul. When you consider the soul and it's operating in the realm of the mind, your emotions and your intellect and, and how you make your choices and decisions, your imagination, it's a good thing to think about that which is sweet to your soul, that which is helpful to your emotions and produces good emotional health, that which is helpful to your intelligence and keeps you from making compromised choices and decisions, that which is helpful to your imagination and protects you from allowing dark thoughts to come in and run wild. I want to see desire realized, but yet I'm, I'm confronted with the reality that there are times when the things that I want don't come to pass. The times when the things that I want do come to pass are really exciting. In fact, I was awakened this morning at about five in the morning to the sound of my sons. They were, were asking each other this question with great uh, energy and excitement. I heard one ask the other, is it true? Is it true? Is school really canceled for the rest of the year? And the other answer, answered, yes, it's true. And then I heard, whoo, 
let's throw it all away. And then you heard the sound of papers rustling and they were going through all of their schoolwork and all of their papers. And I heard, I'm going to throw this away. I'm going to throw that away. Ooh, my math flashcards. I hate my math flashcards. I'm going to burn them. That's when I got up and thought, I better go check on this because I don't know if the burning of math flashcards indoors is a real good idea, you know, so... But when we have our desires and our hopes fulfilled and they come to pass, it leads to a sense of excitement, an awareness that you've, you have been heard and the thing that you want has come to pass can make someone feel very valued and cherished. But the opposite is also true. When something that we want or something that we need seems to be ignored or seems to be looked over, it can produce a sense of frustration. When we come to a place when that which we've prayed for and that which we've sought seems to have been overlooked by God, we need to examine our heart. Identify those feelings of frustration and minister to those things according to the word of God so that they don't become destructive. I mean, by definition, those things would be called disappointments. And we've all known disappointment in some way, shape, or form in our lives. I want to give you a definition of disappointment. It's not going to be very helpful. I mean, at least I don't think it will be. I didn't find it very helpful. And you know how the dictionary can try to get in your head and play some games. But disappointment, the act of disappointing. Did you find that helpful at all? I mean, it doesn't really help me. Uh, the state of feeling or being disappointed. A person or thing that disappoints. I mean, I think that's kind of comical. You know, really, there should be a rule in the dictionary that you can't use the word that you're defining in the definition, right? It would be helpful if that rule could be applied. So I want to find out what that, what that means. Sometimes it's helpful to look at, at synonyms. Now, you've heard me go to the dictionary often, but you can go to another source for information, a, a book called a thesaurus, where you find other words that can stand in place for the word that you're looking up. There are words that are similar, and that's where we get the word synonyms. They're, they're like or, or as the word that you're looking up. And if we go to find synonyms for the word disappointment, we'll get the following words. Failure. Defeat. Frustration. Now, those are words that I think when we hear, we don't need to go to the dictionary. There's no need to, to go look them up. I think we're all acquainted with times where we felt or we've been faced with things that we would consider failure or maybe the world considered them failure. Things that were, uh, had a sense of defeat attached to them when all things were said and done. Uh, things that, that left us in a state of frustration. When you consider disappointment, Consider what those words mean to you when you consider words such as failure or, fail, or words like defeat or, or words like frustration. And then as you consider those words, I want to ask yourself, why is it so easy for us to be familiar with those words? I mean, are there events that come to mind? Are there relationships that come to mind? You know, times or moments where you were hoping for something to come to pass or you had put all of your anticipation into something being fulfilled and then it did not meet that expectation. It was not fulfilled. And in the end, when all of those things that were hoped for or all of those things that were desired did not come to pass, is that the moment when you felt that you were encountering failure or defeat or frustration? I mean, for me, that's the formula. That's really how it works. Now, you really can't have a failure or defeat or frustration without disappointment. And you cannot have disappointment without something having first been appointed. I want to give you the definition of the word appoint. Appoint. To assign a job or a role to or to determine, or to decide on. Now, when we live out our lives and we're dealing with situations and circumstances, uh, the desires in our heart are, are putting appointments onto situations and circumstances. 
the thing that we want to see as the end result, the thing that we desire to see come to pass. When those appointments aren't met, then we're faced with disappointment. Where that job or that role or that determination or that decision is met with failure or defeat or frustration. And it puts us in a position to, to deal with things emotionally. Because when those disappointments enter into our life, or that desire or that hope is not fulfilled, we're left with what the Bible describes as heart sickness. And if that is allowed to, to have its way in our thinking or have its way in our emotions, it's going to work against the things that God brings into our life by the Holy Ghost. Things like the fruits of the Holy Spirit, love and joy, peace and patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We've got to learn how to deal with disappointment in a godly way in order to protect our hearts, in order to stabilize and secure our words and our actions so that we can remain consistent in the midst of inconsistency. Now, in talking about disappointment and in talking about appointment, I want to talk to you about your appointment. I mentioned to you we're going to find out what Jesus did to you, what Jesus did to me. I want to give you a passage of Scripture out of the Gospel of John, John chapter 15, verse 16. Jesus is speaking, and I want you to consider that he's speaking directly to you. And he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you so that you would go and that you would be fruitful, that you would bear much fruit and that your fruit would remain. I mean, Jesus is choosing us and appointing us so that we can go and be productive, so that we can go and our words and our actions can do great things for the kingdom of God. But I want us to consider how he communicates this. He could have easily just said, it's your mission to be fruitful. It's your destiny to be fruitful. It's your purpose to be fruitful. But he opens up this declaration of, of our calling by revealing to us that he has chosen us and that he has appointed us. I want you to consider the power of those things. The power of appointment. I mean, the idea that God would choose you is a wonderfully powerful thing that ought to release every believer from any insecurity that might exist in their heart or in their mind. We have a saying at my house that what you choose is what you love. Now oftentimes this saying is being quoted in, in a way that is, is correcting or, or helpful. Somebody's made a decision to choose something that didn't prioritize what God says we ought to prioritize. And so we evaluate that and we know that, you know, it's really not bad or evil to do that thing, but it's not in line with God's design. If we choose things that we like over things that we're meant to prioritize, then we're declaring our love for one thing over the next. I mean, Jesus dealt with this when he said you can't serve two masters. You will love one and forsake the other. So when we consider the power of choice, if what we choose truly is what we love, then the words that Jesus speaks to us when he says, I chose you, ought to do something incredible in our heart and in our mind. It should liberate us from all insecurity, any thought of inferiority, and it should bring the stability and the security that God, knowing all of our weakness, knowing all of our failure, knowing all sin and the results of sin and all of its corruption, still chooses you, the perfect manifestation of his love. And then upon choosing you, he appointed you, he appointed me, he appoints us. And by that definition that we read earlier, to assign a job or a role, to determine or decide. Well, what did he determine? What did he decide? What job or role did he assign when he appointed you? I mean, when you consider the, the, the depth of this passage of Scripture, it is so enriching to the believer. It should have the most profound effect upon our hearts and our minds and who we are. Consider that He made a decision on you 
That means that he wasn't stuck with few options, you know. I mean, picture a handful of kids around a playground and they're choosing who's on what team and finally there's that last kid. Now, normally that was me, you know. And it's like, well, I guess I'll take Preston. He's the last one, you know. But that God had options. He decided upon you. That should be enriching. That should be, uh, uh, it should elevate your, your awareness of your value and your worth in the eyes of God. That in the midst of options, He chooses you. He decided upon you. And then to determine. I mean, there's thought that goes into this. No one determines or makes a choice or a decision. There's no determination without evaluation, without thought, without analysis of some sort. It's not just random. But upon God's determination, you're appointed to assign a role or a job. Your role to be His child, to carry His name, the authority of His house, to walk in this world as an ambassador for His kingdom. It's incredible to consider. To assign a job. Your job to walk through this world carrying the anointing of the Holy Ghost, speaking His words, performing His works. Your job to be light in the midst of darkness. Your job to be hope in the midst of chaos and hopelessness. Your job to bring stability and security to all things unstable and chaotic. I mean, our appointment is tremendous. And I love the fact that our appointment follows our being chosen. Because the reality is, if that passage of Scripture just said, hey, I appointed you to do all of this stuff, it could produce insecurity in the heart of the believer. That we have this task, that, this daunting task that we're called to, to measure up to, that we're called to live up to and bring to pass. But Jesus wouldn't burden us with this appointment. Rather, he would release this appointment upon us after first revealing that we were intentionally chosen for it. Meaning that your life was evaluated, your capacities were examined, and upon examination, you were seen fit to walk in this appointment. What that positions me to believe and to know is in any situation, in any circumstance, I do have what it takes to fulfill my appointment in God's kingdom. Because of his love and his affection, because of his choosing me among all of the options that he would have, him intentionally choosing me sets me free from any insecurity, any invalid or any corrupt thought that would whisper in my ear that I can't do what he called me to do. It's the power of him choosing us. Jesus makes this declaration in John chapter 15 in verses 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I will abide in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit unless itself abides in the vine. Neither can you be fruitful unless you abide in me. He goes on to say, I am the vine, and you are the branch. He who abides in me, and I in him, will bear much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, when we understand who Jesus is, this passage of Scripture becomes very powerful. I'll explain what I mean by that. An understanding of who Jesus is helps this passage of Scripture to be free from any insecurity or instability that would corrupt the message that's being revealed here. I mean, you have to first know and understand that Jesus does not have an insecure bone in his body. He's not looking for praise or building a platform. He's not looking to jockey for position or maintain a pecking order of some sorts. But he's constantly revealing to us the truth that we need to have revealed to us in order to walk in our calling and our anointing. He's constantly laying himself down so that we can be elevated. He's constantly serving, not looking to be served. What he's not saying here is, hey, listen, buddy, you can't do anything outside of me and don't you forget it. What he's doing here is he's revealing to us the pathway to success, the pathway to fruitfulness. He's revealing to us the method to live out our lives in speaking words that are effective and productive, that build and construct, 
to, to perform actions that are healing and redemptive. He's revealing to us this because this is what he walks in. He's showing us this formula, so to speak, because this defines his life. Luke chapter 22, verse 29, Jesus speaks and he says these words, I appoint unto you a kingdom as my Father has appointed unto me. I mean, you can just think about that for a moment. Let the wheels turn on it. I appoint unto you a kingdom just as my Father has appointed unto me. I mean, those words as or, or just as ought to speak to us something. Jesus is saying, hey, things are going to work in your life the same way that God has them working in my life. I appoint unto you a kingdom in the same way that my Father has appointed one to me. Now, in order for us to know and understand what this means and, and how we're meant to walk in his kingdom, how we're meant to live and minister and function in his kingdom, it's important for us to understand how Jesus lives and ministers and works within the kingdom of God. Because what Jesus is saying is, hey, you're going to have the same thing that I have. So rather than reinvent the wheel and try to crack the Bible code and do all of these things, why don't you just look at how I relate to the Father, how I minister His Word, how I love and care for His people, and then do it the same way. Because I'm going to appoint to you a kingdom the same way God has appointed one to me. I want to give you a few passages of Scripture out of the Gospels. They're going to come from the Gospel of John. John chapter 5, verse 19, John chapter 5, verse 30, and John chapter 8, verse 28. I want to read these to you. I want to read them uh, straight out of the Bible here. John chapter 5, verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it's something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does... These things the Son also does in like manner. Now, if we've been given a kingdom in the same way that Jesus has been given it, we need to understand that to function and operate just like Jesus is going to mean doing things that the Father's doing. Seeing what the Father's doing, not doing your own initiative, not doing the thing that, that you may want to do in a given situation or circumstance, but doing the thing that God would show you to do or reveal to you to do or speak to you to do or His example would uncover for you to do. And according to the words of Jesus, we're called to do those things in like manner. It means be just like God. The other passage there out of the gospel was John chapter 5, verse 30, where Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I don't seek my own will, but I seek the will of him who sent me. For us to walk in this kingdom that we've been called to walk in the same way that Jesus has been called to walk in it is going to require us to not pursue our own will, but pursue the will of God. In John 8, 28, we see Jesus make another reference to how he ministers and how he functions in the kingdom of God. And it should stand out to us as instruction that we're meant to model and meant to mirror. It reads like this. And Jesus therefore said, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he, that I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Now, personally, that last one means a great deal to me. When I read it, there's a lot of things there being spoken. He's identifying the crucifixion. He's, he's identifying this act of ultimate sacrifice as being when we would see what he's talking about. When our eyes could be open to understand this. I mean, basically, when I hear these, these words being spoken, you know, in John chapter 5, and then again in John chapter 5, and then over in, in John 8, I, I have to read between the lines a little bit. And I'll tell you kind of what I see, and obviously it's an opinion, but I want to give my opinion to you. I, I see Jesus saying this to the disciples. I see him saying it, you know, to me, to you. I see him saying it to, to every disciple. 
you know, hey, I don't do anything on my own initiative. You know, and I see people standing around like, oh, yes, maybe the golf clap. Ah. But they really don't get that. So he says it again, you know, later on. He's, he's seasoning all of the conversation and all of the discipleship that's going on. Every time they have a meeting, he's working this in there so that people will get it by repetition. They're hearing it over and over and over. And then you get to John chapter 8, and he says, hey, guys, I, I'm going to say it again. You're probably going to amen it again, but you're not going to get it until you actually see me lifted up on the cross. And it's then you're going to understand what this means. Until then, it, it sounds like a, a great idea. It sounds like a wonderful concept. It, it really sounds uh, pious and religious. And I know that, that, that you're into that kind of thing. But when you see it, when you see me nailed to the cross, when you see that cross lifted up into the air, and you see my body hanging there, then you'll get it. You'll get what I'm talking about. It's an interesting thing that he would say it that way. It provokes a lot of thought. I mean, consider the cross. Why would he say, hey, this event, you'll see it, you'll get it? I mean, I think of all of the miracles and all of the signs and wonders that he could refer to where he could say, hey, you'll see this, you know. You'll know that I do what my Father wills when you see me uh, break bread and multiply it and feed thousands of people. You know, hey, you'll, you'll know, you'll, you'll know when you see it, when you, when you hear me speak one word and it shut the mouths of all of the, the scholars and the lawyers and the Pharisees, when you hear that, then you'll know. You'll be like, ah, oh, there it is. He speaks what God says. There it is. He didn't say that. He didn't say, hey, you're going to get this. You'll see it when you see me take the hand of that little girl that everyone thinks is dead and she rises up. Then you'll see it. And you'll get it, you'll catch it, you'll understand that, wow, this guy does the will of God. None of those things were on his list of examples to impart this teaching, to, to impart this measure of discipleship that he's laboring to impart to his disciples even still today in me and in you. But he says, hey guys, you'll get this. It'll make sense to you. Everything that I've been saying, you'll catch it, you'll understand it, when you see me nailed to the cross and lifted up, then you'll understand what I mean when I say that I, I'm doing God's will. You know, there's something about surrendering to God's will that sounds awesome until it's time to do it. And I can tell you as, as a believer, I, I'm living proof of that. And of course, as a, a pastor, I've seen that, you know, where you've preached messages and there's been, I mean, uh, uh, I've preached before and people have literally stood when I said amen and clapped. And I kind of thought, well, that's, that's interesting, you know. What do you do? You, do you bow? Hey, all right, glad you like that. But then nothing came of it. People like the idea of what's being spoken and we'll all sign up for it. But then when it comes time to deliver, oh, that's tough. And it's, it's okay that we deal with things like that. In fact, I think that's why we have parts of the gospel recorded and revealed to us to help us through these things. And I think that's why Jesus said, guys, you can hear me say this all day long, but until you see me lifted up on the cross, you're not going to get it. And as he's saying that, and I'm, I'm reading it, I understand through, through knowing the end from the beginning, having read the book, I know what he's talking about. It's one thing to say you want to do the will of God, and it's another to do it. And there comes a time, a moment, a fork in the road, where one either does what they've said, or they find a reason or an excuse not to. One either accomplishes their job, their appointment, or they step into the realm of disappointment, failing to accomplish that assigned job or role 
that determined or decided upon purpose and make a way for failure or defeat or frustration to replace that appointment that was once upon their life. Jesus faced that crossroads, and upon facing that crossroads, I believe he allowed this to be documented to help us when we face those things. When we're faced with appointment and disappointment. As Jesus is approaching his appointment, his purpose, this this decided upon, this determined role for his life, the spotless Lamb of God to take away the sins of all the world, to be the propitiation for our sins, to take our place upon the cross. When he's facing this, he's dealing with a crossroads to fulfill that appointment or to walk away from it. He even has a desire. I mean, he has a desire to live. And he allows these things to be recorded in the scripture in his prayers. Now, I want to offer this to you as an idea. There's three Gospels that record Jesus praying before his arrest and his his mock trial and his crucifixion. And the Bible's clear that he prays multiple times, that he prays three times, in fact. It says that in Matthew 26, 44. But the prayers are recorded across three different Gospels, and each of those three Gospels, the prayer is, is different. Maybe it's just slightly different, but it's different. And I want to offer these three prayers as as a process uh, to see how we we move through these these different mentalities when it comes to walking in our appointment, when faced with disappointment. Now, Jesus is facing his appointment, and he has a desire in his heart. He has a desire to live. He has a desire to enjoy the the life that, that he has. And when he's faced with his appointment, he prays. And he prays in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. He prays like this. It says, And he went a little beyond them. The disciples were with them. And he fell on his face and he began to pray. And he prayed saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But not as I will, but as you will. Now, I I hear that prayer and it it resonates in me. I, I think I've prayed that prayer often. But it's interesting to me that the Gospel of Mark records that he prays this prayer and and nothing happens. He's faced with frustration and I don't want to put that on Jesus. Again, like I said, I'm reading between the lines here. It, It is an opinion, but I'm simply offering it to you as an idea. His prayer is interrupted and he gets up and he walks to go check on his buddies and and then he goes back to pray. Why would you go back to pray unless you felt like your prayer initially wasn't effective? He goes back to it. And it's funny that that prayer was, Father, if it is possible. Now you got to understand that this is the same man who just a few chapters before in Matthew 19 made the declaration to all of his disciples that all things are possible with God. I mean, this moment of prayer opens up with this inconsistency. If it's possible for you to do this, do it. I mean, it's a prayer that has a foundation of it, a measure of of doubt or concern. I don't know if this can happen, but if it can, you know, this is my preference. This is my desire. And Jesus, upon praying that prayer that has an element of doubt attached to it, goes back to pray. And upon going back to pray, you'll see a prayer recorded in Mark 14, 36. He changes his prayer a little bit. Well, let's get rid of the doubt. That's inconsistent thinking. It's, it's, it's corrupt thinking. And he goes back and he prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. You see, before it's, hey, if it's possible for you, now it's like, hey, 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 that was, that's goofy. You know, I, I, I'm distracted. I wasn't focused. And I've prayed a lot of distracted prayers. I've stopped in the middle of my prayers and literally laughed out loud and apologized. I'm so sorry for not being focused. I mean, my wife can testify that there are times I've been in conversations and been in la-la land, you know. And it's good for us to focus and be attentive when we're praying. Jesus comes back, and, and again, this is an opinion, 
cleans up the prayer a little bit. It goes from, hey, if it's possible for you, now in Mark 14, 36, he says, hey, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Now, this is kind of the church I grew up in. I mean, you see exclamation points here. It's, it's loud and it's, it's assertive. It's this measure of faith. I believe you can do it, so do it. And that's pretty much the prayer. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. That's what he says. He closes it, not what I will, but what you will. You know, that first prayer had a measure of doubt, if it's possible. This one has a measure of demand. Hey, you can do it, so do it. It can be how we pray sometimes. When we're wanting to see something happen, we're wanting to see breakthrough, we're wanting to see a miracle. We've been trained and taught that, that faith is, is, is unwavering, so we're assertive and we're aggressive and we're bold. And there's nothing wrong with assertive, aggressive, or bold. But I believe God's calling us to a different relationship with Him than simply bossing Him around. And upon praying this prayer, it says Jesus gets up, and apparently, again, it's an opinion, there's a measure of frustration you know, he, he gets up and he walks away from his prayer and he goes to check on the disciples and then he goes back to pray again. Why would you go back to pray again unless you weren't satisfied with the way things were? The first prayer left him unsatisfied. The second prayer left him unsatisfied. And then we come to the third prayer that's recorded in Luke chapter 22. You'll find it in verse 42. Remember the first prayer was, if you can do it. The second prayer was, you can do it, so do it. And now the prayer has changed again. It, it's, it's cleaned up a little more. It's as if all of the, the clouds that, that can get in our, our mind and, and affect our view of who God is and who we are and, and how we ought to, to speak and engage with Him are driven away. And there's clarity of thought. And Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, not if you can, but if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. After he prays this prayer, something happens. Remember, nothing happened after the first prayer. Nothing happened after the second prayer. Both of those left him frustrated to the point he got up and he walked off. And then when he went back to pray and he prayed this prayer, Father, if you're willing... There's no doubt in that. There's no demand in that. It's simply a surrender of request and a yielding to the sovereign hand of God. Father, if you're willing, it's my desire that this passes, but not what I want, but what you want. Then something happened. It says, then an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. I think that means something. When I read the pattern of these prayers and I see that the first one that has a measure of doubt attached to it, you know, if you can do this, I don't know if you can, it's pretty tough. You got it in you? I don't know, we'll see, time will tell. If it has a measure of doubt to it, it leaves unsatisfied and disappointed. Then the second that has a measure of demand, well, you can do it, so do it, get after it. What are you waiting for? Time's wasting. It leaves empty, unfulfilled disappointed. But then the prayer of surrender that simply acknowledges that God is in control and we're willing to yield to his sovereignty opens up the door for heavenly assistance and heavenly favor. In the midst of a time in which Jesus is, is under so much pressure that his soul is in anguish according to the scripture to the point of death. I mean interpret that however you see fit. He could be uh, depressed to the point that he doesn't want to live anymore. He could be simply under so much pressure knowing that so much rides on the decision that it's affecting his clarity of thought or his awareness of his appointment that God has so richly blessed him with. But when he comes to a point where his prayer is free from doubt and free from demand, it's then when heavenly assistance enters in. And it makes perfect sense that this model of prayer would be affirmed with heavenly assistance. This is how he taught us to pray. When the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray, I love that Jesus didn't say, uh, sorry guys, you either got it or you don't. But he said, sure, and he began to teach them. 
It's where we find the Lord's Prayer, which really wasn't meant to be repeated as, as a prayer of repetition, but rather it's just a, an instruction, a guideline to pray. And within that instruction, within that guideline, this is one of the key elements. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right here in my life. It's a prayer that I might conform to his will and see it come to pass. Now, we mentioned before the few things that we were going to find, you know, that renewal of youth when desire is fulfilled, what Jesus did for you when he chose you and appointed you. And we're going to find out who we are. I want to offer you a couple of scriptures here. One, we're going to revisit the verse that we open with. And we're going to pull a passage of, of scripture from Isaiah to close with. Psalm 37, verse 4. It's the passage we open with. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I've wrestled with this because I've had situations and circumstances where I was praying for something or praying for someone. And the result that I longed for and the result that I desired wasn't the result that came to pass. And it left me in a state of having my desires unmet, my hope deferred. And it opened up the door for heart sickness. And I needed that ministered to so that depression or some negative or dark effect wouldn't come in and overtake my, my heart, my mind, my thinking, my actions. I wanted to find out what does it mean to delight yourself in the Lord so that we can have the desires of our heart. I want to offer you something that, that I found as I looked for the word delight. In my world, delight means to, to be happy or, or to be excited or satisfied. It's a word that, that works with words like enjoyment. But that word delight there means something, and it means something specific. If you turn to the concordance and you look for the word delight, you'll find an interesting term. A term that was unexpected when I saw it, but powerful. It meant pliable. Pliable. It's not a word that we use often. It's maybe a little odd, but pliable, meaning like flexible or, or able to be molded. Not rigid and, 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 and hard but rather flexible, soft. It's interesting to consider that, and when I apply the word pliable to the passage here, it changes the passage to me in a powerful way, and I hope it does for you too. And rather than consider, you know, be delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart, what if we were to consider this? Be pliable in the Lord. Be flexible in the Lord. Not the compromise of the world, but be willing to be flexible and molded by God's hand himself and you'll be satisfied. Be pliable in the Lord and he'll give you the, the desires of your heart. Be pliable in the Lord and you'll find satisfaction. I believe when we see Jesus in his prayers, he has what he wants. Well, if you can do this, this is what I want. And then it goes from, well, I know you can do it, so do it. And then you have this prayer of pliability. This prayer that simply says, if it's your will, then let this come to pass. We have a call upon our lives to minister this, the same kingdom that Jesus ministers within and to minister in that kingdom the same way in which Jesus ministers in that kingdom. It means doing what we see God doing, saying what we hear Him saying. It means being willing to be pliable by His hand. And I want to give you this passage of Scripture as we close. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 8. I told you we're going to find out who we are. This is who we are. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. All of us are the work of your hand. I believe the key in our life is to allow God to shape us and mold us, and for us to stop trying to shape and mold who God is. The key for satisfaction 
the key for desire fulfilled, the key to that tree of life that we read of in the Scripture when the things that we long for in our heart come to pass is when we allow our heart to be shaped and formed and molded by the hand of God. For our lives to no longer be asking God to to mold His will around our desires. But our hearts and our prayers be, Father, mold my desires and the things of my heart around Your will. My cry is no longer, please do this on my behalf, but my prayer is, please align my life with Your will. Open my eyes to see it clearly and strengthen my mind and my heart to be willing to surrender and lay down. Rather than me mold you in this situation or this circumstance, let me be pliable, allow you to mold me, and let me find the satisfaction that comes from having desire and hope fulfilled by your hand. I want to pray with you. Father, we bless your name and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love and your affection for each one of us. That you would offer your son in our place, removing all sin and condemnation from our lives. That you would enrich us and empower us with your spirit. I ask right now by the Holy Spirit that you would touch and bless each one of us in our hearts and in our minds. That we would receive counsel and direction from your word. That we would lay down thought patterns and lifestyles of doubt and demand and that we would take on the call to surrender, to be pliable, that we would acknowledge you as our maker and us as the material, you as the potter and us as the clay and in every situation and in every circumstance, let us surrender to your will that we might walk in the satisfaction that your word promises. We bless you and we thank you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Champions Church. We invite you to join us this Sunday for our celebration worship service. For more information, please visit us at championschurch.com.